Welcome to Tone Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Hello, and welcome to Tone Benders. I'm Timothy Meerhead, and as always with me is Renee Coronado. You can reach the podcast on Twitter via at the Tone Benders. You can find Renee at Renee underscore Coronado and myself through at Azimuth Audio. Renee, how you doing? How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Excellent. Before we get into what we're doing today, I'm acting as the host because Renee is kind of our guest, but I just wanted a shout out to uh, everybody. This is our 40th episode. I never thought we'd get this far. This is amazing. Yeah, you know, we put a lot of work into these and with both of us having young children at the house, it's uh, it's a little trickier to find the time, but it's worth it because we love it. Yeah, it's been a fun ride and just, I guess, last month would have been three years, I think, since we our first episode came out. So That's nutty. It's kind of cool that it's still going and... Uh, We've slowed down a little bit in the frequency of the releases, but hopefully we can kick that back up again. Yep. Also, we haven't really talked for a while. We did that last episode with Giuseppe where we interviewed him, but we didn't really get to talk to each other. We went like six episodes where either one or the other of us was doing the podcast solo, and we never got to talk about that stuff. I just wanted to say that the Matt Martinson episode that you did with him was really awesome because I was going through a very similar thing with doing one of my first video games as I was listening to the recording and I basically halfway through the project stopped and like changed how I was doing everything because of what you guys said and it made my life much easier for the last half of that. So thank you very much for, without me even knowing you were doing it, doing a very timely podcast episode for my personal life because it's all about me, Renee. So what did you change? I was doing a video game as close as I possibly could to the way that I do a regular linear piece of media. Basically, I was getting quick times and I was just building a sequence and bouncing out all the different files. But then when I would get an updated quick time, like everything would be out of sync and I didn't know how to rebuild that. And you guys talked about having uh, bounce tracks and stuff like that and just different ways of working that I hadn't thought of that were actually totally straightforward when I thought about it, but just changed my approach and was really helpful. Yeah, that's cool. It's a totally different workflow and discipline. And yeah, Matt's awesome. And I'll tell you what, I jump on that Slack channel that he runs just about daily right now because there's some really cool people in there. Yeah, I was really happy with that episode. It tightened up my game a lot. Let's put it that way. Nice. So uh, thanks for that. And then also the uh, marriage equality parade recording that you did. Thank you for doing that one, because just this week I was cutting an episode of a show I'm working on that took place at the outside of a football stadium as people were uh, coming out after the big win. And I was able to use a bunch of the crowd noise from that the free recording that you put out oh, to right kind of on. fill in the uh, space. So that worked out really well. So you've been so helpful to me recently, <laughs> Renee. We do what and we I can. I have been not helpful to you at all. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we did a couple other episodes in there, but uh, those were the two that you did that really stuck out for me. So now that we're back together... Go team, go, eh? That's right. So you did, uh, I guess it was just this week, you did a really amazing uh, field recording session that you're going to tell us about today. So you recorded roller coasters at an empty amusement park. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, the story of this is that Six Flags has one advertising agency that they use to do all of their spots nationwide. Six Flags uh, headquarters, corporate headquarters is here in Dallas where I'm at. So Six Flags for anyone not in North America is like a chain of huge amusement parks with giant roller coasters and uh, they're kind of the the standard bearer, would you say, for that industry? Uh, yeah, them and Disney World. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. 
but yeah, Six Flags, uh, you know, is more widely uh, distributed. There's there's just lots and lots of them. And, uh, you know, the original story of them is there's Six Flags over Texas, and then somehow they managed to go uh, outside of Texas and, and hit a whole bunch of other uh, locales. But, you know, their whole vibe is the big roller coaster, thrill ride, theme park kind of thing. And, um, and they're a big, big company. And their corporate location is here. And so they they do all of this advertising for all of the various little uh, promos and things that they run across all of their different parks all year long. And they do all of that advertising here in town in Dallas. They were getting tired of hearing the same screams coming out of their video editors' uh, video suites across all these spots over the last several years. So they finally uh, decided to put some money, put some resources into uh, getting new audio, getting new sounds for everything. So the agency that deals with that kind of looked around and saw us and, and reached out to me and said, hey, can, can you show me some of your work? And so I showed them the hockey crowds that I've done. I showed them the rodeos that I've done. And I showed them the, uh, the Porsche recordings that, that we talked about. And uh, they were into it. So they hired us and we got the gig. And basically, I had a week from the day that they hired us till showtime to prepare and and get ready for the gig, right? So was this a new amusement park? Like, why was it empty? Uh, It's just closed that day. So they, you know, they they run Fright Fest all through Halloween and then they take a week off. Gotcha. And so we were were recording literally November 3rd. So kind of a couple days into what is the normal week off that the whole park takes. So it was just kind of during their scheduled time off, and that's when they, they had to do it. And so I only had a week to prep, right? And it was kind of a broad mandate, but it was a pretty big budget. I mean, they've spent tens of thousands of dollars on making this happen overall. Between, wow. between the fee that they paid us and, you know, I literally had, you know, six or eight advertising agency people there with me the whole day. <laughs> We had park engineers there with us the whole day. We had ride operators there with us the whole day. And they hired screamers. So we had, you know, 15 or 20 screamers there with us the whole day. This is a nine to five day. On top of, you know, the electricity and lunch and all of that. I mean, the the amount of money that they invested in getting some audio recordings was pretty steep compared to what happens out there just on a day-to-day basis. It was like a film shoot. Yeah, this is a pretty impressive yeah, which shows how much they uh, either hated the sounds that they've been living with for the last year or just shows how much they value it, I guess, right? Because they, uh, after years, and I, I just know this because I've been talking to them, after years of ruminating on the same screams and whatever, they're like, man, we need new stuff. And they really felt that they need new stuff enough to where they put together a significant enough budget to really get it done right. Yeah, that's an impressive uh, layout that they put on. So how many rides were you aiming to record. So we had two days to deal with it, right? So the first day was the scout where we would go through and determine exactly which rides we were going to record on the day of. And the reason we had to really lock that down in advance is because the engineers and the safety people have to prep and check every ride before we put any people on it, right? Yeah. So we can't have the engineers and the safety people dealing with rides that we're not actually going to record. Makes sense. So... On the scout, I went and rode as many rides as we could ride. <laughs> so I rode. So when you went on the scout, the park was open? The park was open to the public, yeah. Okay. For the scout. Now, I still had the the Six Flags people with me. And it, and it was funny, too, because it's one of those, 
there are people that are roller coaster people, and there are people that are not roller coaster people. Definitely. That would be me and my wife. I am a roller coaster <laughs> person, and my wife wants nothing to do with them. Well, and the park people work in roller coasters, right? So they are roller coaster people. And, you know, they're excited to get on the rides. They ride these rides all the time, right? But they're excited to get on the rides. And they're looking at me like, you're going to ride this ride with me, right? Because they don't want to, they want to make sure I'm not one of those guys, you know? Gotcha. <laughs> so, yeah. So on the Scout, I mean, we rode, we rode the Texas Titan. We rode uh, Judge Roy Scream. We rode Main Train. I went and rode uh, Batman a couple of times because that was just fun. Uh, we rode Superman, which is a crazy intense ride. And so we rode all of these rides. And while I'm riding the rides, we're having to evaluate a whole bunch of stuff, right? I'm evaluating what does it sound like? I'm evaluating where can I put mics on this that won't catch wind? And how many people are we going to put on there? And where, you know, how am I going to be able to mount mics and people in a way? Uh, mic, I'm not mounting people. How am I going to be able to mount mics in a way that's going to catch my people the right way? Um, you got to use a lot of duct tape to mount the, all those people. Oh my God. <laughs> and so, you know, we came up with a plan, you know, and, and the scout really greatly influenced which rides we ended up covering and which rides we ended up passing because they sounded just like the last ride we went on. And so, yeah, we, we did a lot of riding. And I also, when I'm riding the rides, I'm putting my hands around in the car and feeling for wind. Oh yeah. And some of them have, you know, big wooden car compartments. And I've got all these places where I can mount mics to them. Some of them, like the Batman ride, it's literally a chair attached to a rail that's flying through space. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's not a lot of mount points. And the thing's going stupid fast. It's going, you know, 80 miles an hour or whatever, upside down. And also, it was important for me to ride it because I really got a sense of the, uh, the G-forces that go on on those rides. When those things go in 70 miles an hour and they do a helix loop and then turn upside down, like everything inside of you gets pulled up and out of the chair as hard as it can pull, right? For sure. So it's the design. Right. And, you know, my experience recording the, the Porsches was a little bit less than that. I didn't get to ride in the Porsches, but a lot of the G-forces in the Porsches are left and right. Yes. The G-forces on a roller coaster are up, up and, and out. Yeah. And so it really gave me um, a wake-up call with regards to exactly how locked down everything inside my bag that I mount on the rise is going to have to be. In the end, uh, I have my list here. In the end, we recorded one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight different rides. Wow. So when you say you recorded them, I'm assuming you had microphones off of the coaster for passbys and such, as well as mics on the coaster. And then you would have had to do two, at least, well, probably many passes, but one with screamers and one without. Is that correct? That's true on the fully wired ones. On some of them that we didn't fully wire up, where we were just getting people, we didn't do any uh, onboard rigging. Okay. So, like, we did the teacups, right? Okay. And, you know, the teacups don't really sound like anything. Yeah. But they're a really, really good way to get Doppler buys of screams. Oh, for sure, yeah. And the same thing was true of the Conquistador, which is a big kind of, uh, it's the big ship that just rocks back and forth. Yes. Right? Well, the thing doesn't make any noise, really. It just goes, you know, that's it. But mm -hmm. you get people on there. Uh, I'll find you some Conquistador so you can hear it. So you get people on it. Yeah. Let's do it. Woo! 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 
see how you can, you know, take something like that and layer it across a big roller coaster as it's going by. For sure. You get all these nice kind of Doppler buys. <laughs> and the ride's not really making any noise. Yeah, the ride's pretty quiet. Yep. And we did cool. other things too, like we did some kind of fake setups where, you know, we'd say, all right, everybody, scream and then laugh. And that's with nobody moving at all. Right? Yeah, that's stationary. But they, they right. were on the ride, but stationary, I guess? Exactly, yeah. It was yeah. after after one of the rides, we said, all right, everyone mm -hmm. stay where you are, and now let's do these couple of things. Cool. So these were just basically like extras that you just brought in. Right, exactly. That's awesome. It sounded like there was kids in there too. Was that a priority you made? Yeah. Well, you know, they have a lot of footage, right? So they've got all of this footage. That they've done this before on the video side. Got it. Where they, they've locked the whole park off. And they've brought all their cameras in and, you know, suction cup and clamp mounted all the cameras across all the different rides and put actors in the rides and rode the rides, right? So they have all of this footage of these uh, people riding the rides that they spent all this time and money and effort capturing, but they didn't capture audio at the same time. Mm -hmm. So they were able to look at their footage and cast actors based on the look of what they've already got in the can. Okay. Wow. They're, yeah. So this was really planned out and thought out. This was no fly by night organization here. You know, they really have it down to a science on the picture side for sure. Mm -hmm. So you listed the list of uh, rides that you recorded, but unfortunately I've never been there. So they mean nothing to me. You, <laughs> you got some wood roller coasters, I hope. And some so let steel me, ones? Yeah, let me go down the list here. So we did the Judge Roy Scream, which is a, a classic wooden roller coaster. It just kind of goes up and down and then takes a turn and then goes up and down and comes back. We did the Pandemonium, which is a metal roller coaster that's a four-seater that free spins, right? So that one was tricky. What does free spin mean? Like cars spin on the track yeah the, the car is sitting on a on a on an axis that's not being uh held in place in any way and it's not being rotated by any mechanical force other than just g-forces of the car as it's so yeah when you whip around a bend you just start spinning you just start spinning yeah wow i've never been on one like that that sounds cool yeah that one's fun and it's a, it's a four-seater and it's two people seeing facing each other okay in each car Uh, so that's Pandemonium. Uh, Mine Train is a three-minute ride. It's a big wood roller coaster, and it goes through a bunch of tunnels. That's one of the longer rides. A lot of the rides are like, I mean, like 90 seconds, if that. Yeah. We did the Texas Titan which is a big giant metal roller coaster that does all of your classic roller coaster things. The big clank as it climbs up the big hill at the beginning and the huge drop and then into turns and twists and all that.
the conquistador was the thing we just heard, which was the ship that just rocks back and forth. Yeah, kind of a, I think it's a pirate ship normally at most places. Yeah, it's a pirate ship. Yeah. The Superman is just a straight vertical ride. So it's a big hydraulic catapult. So they strap you in a chair that's locked into a big vertical pillar, right? Okay. And then it just launches and you shoot up into the sky, still attached <laughs> to this pillar the whole way, but you shoot up yeah. to the sky like with insane G-forces until you get to the top and then it, it hovers you up there for a minute and then drops you straight back down. <laughs> My feet went a little numb when I rode that one. Oh, wow. It was, it's intense. It's just up and down. So when all these actors, you got them on it and they just went on the same ride over and over and over again, right? Uh, you know, we, we were very careful to not wear our actors out, right? Yeah. That's what I was going to ask if that became an issue. Yeah. So we, we thought about that as well. We scheduled the rides in a way that would give our actors time to recover, basically. Because if you go on a ride 19 times in a row by the 19th time, even if it's the best ride ever, it's probably starting to become old hat. So, Right. Well, and the other thing is I, I learned from experience rigging cars and also talking when we did the vehicle recording roundtable and we were talking to Rob Noakes, Watson Wu, Max Lockman. That was episode 25 for anyone who wants to go back and listen to it. So they all kind of confirmed something that I had in my own experience was that it takes a solid hour to wire up a car. And so when we, when we did the scout and they were talking about schedule and how many coasters we could cover in one day, I said, look, for any full rig, I'm going to need a solid hour to wire up one of these cars. So, you know, given that the way that we handled the talent was I would take an hour, wire the car, we'd run it empty. Then we'd get talent on it. We'd run it two or, you know, two or three times really. And that'd be about it. Talent would move off, we'd run it empty one more time, and then we'd have to rip the whole rig off and move to the next car. So it's not like they could really run it 20 or 30 times anyway. Okay. Um, we only got, I think, a max of about three with screamers on any given ride. Okay. That's enough. Yeah. Screaming is screaming. So It's really tough. And I jumped on it. <laughs> I'm in a couple of the recordings. I, I jumped on them a couple times just so that I could, A, so I could set levels on them, and B, just because I wanted to ride some of them. Was there a major difference between the sound of the various steel coasters or were they fairly uniform? The steel coasters are pretty uniform. The wood coasters have a lot more kind of difference between them. Yeah. So I'll show you. Here's the Batman, which is a big steel coaster that it's this is the one that's just the cars kind of out in space. And here's the empty one. Even though it's very distinct and unique, it's kind of... Sounds almost like an alien wind as much. Yeah, it almost sounds like wind. And here's the Texas Titan after the big drop.
so it's it's kind of a similar sound. Those were the from the exterior yeah, buys. Very sleek without much movement. Right. Like jiggling or anything. Where I assume the wooden ones, on the other hand, would just be lots of little details and stuff like that. Exactly. Like so here's the Judge Roy scream, which is one of the wood ones. Then here's the mine train, which is a different wooden one. So that was the slowest pass by I could have played, but I played a different one. <laughs> <laughs> So that one's just got kind of a more rattly type feel to it. Yeah, rattles and clanks and such, which is kind of what uh, mentally you, you want a roller coaster to sound like, even though the steel ones wouldn't. Right. Although uh, I've cut wooden sounds onto steel coasters and stuff just to give it some more life in the past. To be fair, here's here's the pandemonium, which is the steel one that's the four-seater that free spins. Okay. Yeah, that one's got a bit more life to it for yeah, sure. Yeah, that's got a very different sound than the Batman because it's just got more kind of moving parts to it. For sure. Let's talk about when you did get a chance to actually mic up one of the cars on one. What what was your approach and what was your crew for this, but first off? So initially they said, hey, we like you. Why don't you come do this? And I said, this is awesome. I need another guy. <laughs> I know I need yeah. help. Um, I, I learned that very clearly when we recorded the Porsches and I got to take Steven out there with me, um, who was our intern at the time. And I just, it was very, very clear to me that I could not have recorded as much material as I did on that shoot on my own. Right. And so I knew I needed another person that was strong and experienced and reliable to come with. So I, we hired a guy named Scott Ross, who's, who's a local guy around here. And he was just great because he stepped into a really tough situation where, you know, he's recording something that he's not used to recording every day because none of us are used to recording this every day. Yeah, exactly. And he's stepping into my gear, right? So he's not, he's not even bringing his own gear. He's just showing up. <laughs> so is he a sound designer, a location recordist? He's a location what, recordist. So he's, okay. he's a field recordist. Uh, I guess I should say he's a... Uh, he goes out on TV and film shoots to record dialogue mostly, right? Yes, exactly. So roller coasters are slightly different. Right. And I've had him out with me on stars gigs and et cetera. And so I knew he was good. And so we got them to budget for him. And then the other thing that happened was, so I had a week to prepare, right? So I, the first thing I did was I sat there and I said, okay, what's my rig going to be? And I kind of sketched out a list of the things that I'm gonna, I was going to need to take. Then I took that list and I posted it to the JW Sound Forum and I emailed Tim Preble and I emailed Oliver Matchin. Who is a guest for the Mad Max episode we did last spring. Right. Because if there's anyone that can help me with this, it's those guys, right? For sure. Tim Preble was the sound designer and field recordist for the World's Fastest Indian. So, and he just, he's done lots of vehicles before. So I knew he was going to be able to put a good critique to my stuff. And the same was true of Oliver. Oliver obviously recorded all of the vehicles for Mad Max. And so since I can email that guy, good Lord, why would I not, right? Yeah, exactly. And both of them were, were very cool and very helpful. And the, the JW Sound Forum was also very good. 
the way that I approach that when I reach out to people, it's a little bit of the Bruce Lee philosophy of take what is useful and disregard the rest, especially when I post to a forum. I do have my own experience and my own ideas that I believe in, but I'm looking for people to shoot holes in my plan or offer up unique suggestions that I hadn't necessarily thought of yet. And I did get good suggestions from all three sources and it did affect the rig that I took out. The other thing that greatly affected the rig that I took out was the Scout because initially I was going to take my uh, Sure VP88 out as one of the onboards, but that mic is just so big and heavy that I found out that I was going to have no way to actually mount the thing securely and simultaneously aim it at anything interesting, <laughs> <laughs> right? So that ended up getting swapped out from my Crown PZMs, which were the heroes of the day. So let me give you the, uh, the gear list that I finally ended up going out with for the onboards. I had two Crown PZMs. I had two MKH-50s, one of which I'm recording into right now. I brought two Jez Riley French contact mics, although I never ended up taking them out of my bag. I also brought two COS-11 uh, Sankin Lav mics. Okay. I had a Sankin Cub rig that what I did was I, I took a rack panel, a one-space rack panel that was cut in half. Yeah. And I, using gaffer tape, mounted the two Sankin Cubs in ORTF with tape onto this uh, rack panel. Yeah. So in the end, all I'd have to do was mount the rack panel, and now I've got a nice stereo image off the Cubs. So you mounted the rack panel on the car? Or? Well, the Cubs were mounted to the rack panel. Yes, but then the panel was on board. Right, and the panel was to be mounted on board. Yep. And all of that was running into the 788 in a bag uh, powered by the NP1s. So that was my onboard rig. I had three rigs down on the ground that Scott was running. So one of them was my Sheps Dual Omni rig, which is the exact same rig I used to record the marriage equality parade. Okay, yes. It's two Sheps mics in Omni in an MS mount, kind of facing opposite directions. Mm -hmm. So that was on its own stand. I had one big kind of complex rig that was a pair of MKH-60s, which are uh, Sennheiser shotguns that are kind of medium length shotguns, a lot like 416s, right? Yeah. And they were shooting at about 110 degrees left and right. And I had a Line Audio CM3, which is a wide cardioid mic, shooting middle. In the middle. And all of that was on one big mic stand. Okay. And so those were placed at like curves or at the bottom of hills and such like that? Yeah, those were for buys and for long straightaways. And really, I got that idea from, from Max Lockman in the, in the car recording episode with the way that he records car buys on big straight buys. He uses shotguns aimed at a wide angle so that he yes. can basically get two different pass You buys. used this for the Porsche too, didn't you? Your Porsche recording? I did, yeah. And I loved it on the Porsche. Yeah. But on the Porsche recordings, I had a Sheps MS rig in the middle and because I'm using my Sheps's as a dual Omni rig here, I didn't have that option. So I substituted for the MS yep. rig with the Line Audio CM3. And that worked well? It worked great. I will show you one. <laughs> Actually, a lot of those, uh, those buys that you just heard were with that rig. Okay. So here's the rig. This is the Sheps Omnis. So that's the Sheps Omnis with the 416 on the Batman rig. Here is the MKH-60s, the 416, and the CM3, and the Sheps Omnis on one rig. And 
Here's a faster one. That's what I'm talking about. That one's great. So if I break that down, here's the Line Audio CM3 by itself. So that's just pointing straight, right? That's just pointing straight. Here's the MKH-60s by themselves. These are the ones that are at 110 degrees left and right. And you hear how big that makes a stereo field. Yes. Here's the 416 that was tracking with. So that one was handheld. Yes. That was handheld. And then here's the Sheps Omnis. Ooh, wow, that was that was nice and thick. A little more bass in that one. And then so when I put them all together, it sounds like this. So you get a nice big coherent sound. Yeah, that's awesome. So going back to the mics that were on board, do you want to talk about how you uh, did your drafting and your actual uh, locking everything down? Sure. So one of the main priorities for the shoot was to record people screaming in the cars. So the best way I could figure out to do that, and the heroes of the whole thing was the Crown PZMs. (laughs) Because what I was able to do on every single ride was gaffer tape the Crown PZMs to the rear seats of the front car. Okay. The PZMs run in a hemispherical pattern, right? I love it when you get a day where you get to use the word hemispherical. That's right. <laughs> so when you uh, when you mount them to a flat surface, they utilize the entire surface kind of as a uh, reflector to reflect sounds into the mic element, right? Yeah. And so I was able to use basically the entire surface area of the seats as a almost like a parabolic reflector to capture sound. Yes. And it was also perfectly drafted. As long as I didn't have any wind hitting me from the sides, I was going to be way good with the things hurtling through space forward. Mm -hmm. So let me show you the PZMs by themselves with some screamers on them. (laughs) She was excited. Yeah, that one screamer is into it. She was going, man. She went all day, too. So the PZMs were just the absolute heroes for recording voices on this rig. And so typically, a lot of what I did was I would rig up the all these uh, roller coasters come in multiple cars per coaster, right? Yes. Each car will have about three rows of seats in it, and then it'll attach with a hinge to the next car. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I would wire the first car within an inch of its life and put no people on it. And all of my people would be on the second car and back. And then the crowns would be on the back of the first car. Exactly. So the people would be right in front of it. Right. That makes sense. And so... Well, they'd be right behind it, I guess. Well, they'd be in front of the mics, uh, you know, based on how the mics are aimed. So yeah, it's good both, right? So physically, yeah, yeah, behind them, but also in front of the mics because my mics are aimed backwards. (laughs) (laughs) And so... That made sense. It all makes sense. Uh, And so, you know, that was really the hero, hero mic for capturing my people. The cubs I used a lot to capture rail noise, right? So I was always trying to find a place 
as close to the bottom of the car as I could for the Cubs. Now, the um, Cubs are the ones mounted to the rack, metal rack bar, right? Right. And the tricky thing with a lot of these coasters, too, is on the bottom half of them, they're just covered in grease. Because yes. these wheels are just throwing grease up on the coasters. So in a lot of cases, it was a little bit tricky to find a place to mount the Cubs on the mine train here. Here's my Cubs. So you see, they still caught a lot of people because they're yes. back there on the same plane as my PZMs, but they're kind of more aimed at the t at the tire. Yeah, but you obviously had takes without the people on it. Right. The MKH-50 was inside of one of the front cars, usually, aimed at a floorboard. And that's really just for beef. Yeah. And then the COS-11, I would find whatever little gap in the floor I could find and kind of put the COS-11 in there. The COS-11 is a tiny, tiny lav mic. It's really small. Yeah. And that ends up giving me a lot of kind of edge and bite. And then when I put them all together, they sound like this. <laughs> that one kid is super happy. I love hearing the breakdown of the different mics because like the MKH that you had pointed at the floor, which is essentially a useless sound on its own. But when you put it in with everything else, it really fills it out. And as you said, gives it that beef. Yeah, exactly. And here's the same part of the same ride with no people on it. So again, here's a COS-11, which is the LAV. And then this is the PZMs. Which still have a really nice kind of stereo feel to it. And the Cubs ain't down by the by the wheels. And then the MKH fifty. So they work out really well together. So we now know where you placed all the mics. How did you actually place them? Was this just a whole roll of gaffer tape on each thing or how are you doing this? I did buy extra gaffer tape and bring extra gaffer tape. So the crowns almost exclusively were just gaffer tape because that's kind of the only way you can mount those things. Yeah. Uh, but fortunately, you know, you bring enough gaffer tape to, and you can't be shy with it, right? So we were literally taking the, the roll and rolling it all the way around the seat a couple of times. And what was happening too is I had I had the safety people there with me, right? From the park. The park safety people have to inspect my rigging 
before they send the car out. Yeah, that makes sense. Because if one of those things drops off and hits a rail, it could derail a car. And that's considered bad in that industry? I mean, a little. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the, and the girl was really, really cool. She was really nice, but she was also very serious about what she was doing, as she should be. And yeah. so with the, with the PZMs, you know, we really went to town with the gaffer tape. And the same thing was true with the Cubs. Uh, they pretty much just got gaffer taped within an inch of their lives. And, you know, we did a lot of things where we would, you know, grab uh, paper towels and clean the surfaces that we were going to tape to and get them nice and clean before we would tape to it so the tape would stick better. The MKH-50, I almost exclusively zip-tied to a lap bar. Okay. Either pointing up or pointing down. A lot of the lap bars are inside the cars, and zip ties are the most secure way you can lock anything down. So what I would do in a lot of cases with the MKH-50 is I'd wrap it in a t-shirt to shock mount it, and then just zip tie it all the way down. And did you have any wind protection on it, or? No, I didn't wind protect anything. Okay. And I've learned this, if, you, if you're mounting in such a way that you need a lot of wind protection, then you're mounting wrong. On the onboards anyway, because the the vehicle has to cut the wind 100% for you. If the vehicle's not cutting the wind away from the mic, then you've got the mic in the wrong spot. Um, And you'll notice there's no wind sound on any of that. Yeah, it's pretty clean for sure. So what about the recorder? How are you locking that down? Or is that just in a bag on your shoulder? No, I, I did have to lock it down. So what I did was I had I had a 788 in a petrol bag with uh, with a NP1 power kit in it, and I basically had every element in the bag um, zip tied to the bag, right? Okay. So the 788 was zip tied into the bag, and my battery was zip tied to the bag. So everything in there, if you took the bag and turned it upside down and shook it as hard as you could, nothing was going to come out of it. And that was a very important step because a lot of G-forces would pull things up and out of bags on, on the rides. For sure. So I had all that kind of together. And then I brought uh, bungee cords. So I would put the bag in one of the seats and put the lap bar down on it and push it until it was all the way locked down in place. And then with the bungee cords, I would tie the bag to the lap bar. Okay. Just to kind of triple protect. Um, from anything moving. So you've got the stuff zip tied into the bag, the lap bar pinning down the bag, and then bungee cords pinning down again. Right. Okay. And then all the cables that were coming in from all the mics, I would basically take all of them and zip tie them to various lock points, either either lap bars or other points of a car, and lock them off on the way to the bag and then at the bag, I would get a whole group of cables and just zip tie the whole thing down to one of the lap bars. So nothing was moving. And this was all done in a way so that you could see the front of the 788, I suppose? Yeah. I, I had to really reach in there. And, there, you know, to check playback was a little tricky because I, I couldn't leave any headphones on it. So I had to kind of scoot it enough to where I could plug headphones into it uh, to check playback after a run. So while you were on the coaster, no headphones. Correct. And, you know, and often the whole rig would run with me on the ground. Because we had spoken before you did this recording, you were investigating doing wireless headphones. That never happened? I actually did put a wireless headphone transmit rig on my bag. And I did have a receiver down in its own rig on the ground. But those things go so far and they throw so much RF that it broke up so quickly 
that I didn't feel like it was useful as far as anything that I wanted anyone else to listen to. Yeah. So after the first coaster or two, yeah, I had the transmitter in the bag and it was zip tied to it, but I kind of put the receiver in the truck and didn't go back to it. Fair enough. I tried. (laughs) (laughs) So how were you able to budget your time throughout the day? If you knew you had eight coasters to get to, uh, were, were you running out of time or were you able to plan that out and execute in a fairly timely fashion. So the people at the park and at the advertising agency got together. I, I, you know, they asked me, all right, how long is it going to take to wire up a car? And I said, give me an hour. Give me an hour per full rig. And you did how many full rigs? Three, did you say? Uh, I think I did four. Four? See. Okay. One, two, three, four. I might have done five. I think we did five. Oh, wow. So that's more than half your day just rigging up those four rides. Exactly. And so, you know, with that information, they went together and they got together with themselves and the park people who have to safety check and QC all the rides. And they put a schedule together and that was kind of dictated to me. Okay. But with that said, we were able to stick to the schedule because my time estimation was good. So they did the time budgeting. Right. So they dictated the schedule to me. And initially I wanted to record the Judge Roy scream first, which is the wooden roller coaster that just kind of goes up and down. Okay. The reason I wanted to do that one first is because that one doesn't have any G-forces. It's a little lower pressure as far as making sure everything is locked off and exactly right. Yeah, kind of a good test run to see how things hold up. So after the scout, that was the plan. We're going to start with the Judge Roy scream. We're going to move on to these other ones, right? Who's Judge Roy? I have no idea. Okay. (laughs) I get there the day of. I'm like, all right, let's go to the Judge Roy and get rolling. And they're like, nope, we're starting with the Titan. We're starting with the Titan. <laughs> yeah, we're starting with the Titan. Apparently the Judge Roy takes longer for the crew to get ready than the Texas Titan does. Okay. So right off the bat, it's into the biggest, fastest, hardest two-rig roller coaster that we got. <laughs> so I figured, well, I'm going to have to get it right at some point. Let's get it right now. We're going to have to get it right at some point. Feet to the fire. Fair enough. Were you able to stick mostly to their time budget plan? Uh, yeah, you know, we, uh, th- they had crew call at nine, which they didn't inform me of. So I showed up at eight. <laughs> <laughs> so fortunately I was able to get a kind of head start on the day. Oh, you were still able to get in. Yeah. And their schedule had wrap at six thirty, and we wrapped right before seven. Okay. Pretty much on target. So we actually, we hit everything we were trying to hit and, and we ended up staying on schedule. That's impressive. I think so. It, immensely impressive beyond just that day, but given that you had very little prep time, right? Uh, it's even more impressive. And the number of moving parts in play, when you really think about what it takes to get these coasters up and running safely, and the number of people that were moving around and having to keep engaged throughout the day, um, I was For very, sure. very happy with how the, the recording day went. Yeah, that's impressive, especially when you have your screamers that I assume while you're rigging up the roller coaster are all just sitting reading a book staring at you or something. That's pretty much it, yeah. Yeah, so there's kind of an unspoken social pressure. Like, sure, they're being paid, they're not going to get upset, but you also want to keep things moving. Exactly, yeah. But I also had to, I had to be both efficient and safe throughout the whole yes. day. On top of, I had to actually be recording something interesting and useful. Well, that's the whole point there. Well, it's one thing to rig a a coaster up and have everything be safe and have that happen quickly. And it's another thing to have all of your mics in a place that is useful and to have your recorders uh, set correctly and have all your preamp levels right. And, you know, all the little, you know, menu settings that you can't get to anymore because your your recorder is like strapped to a seat. You know, you have to have all of that 
prepped in advance. I mean, I, I spent two days just putting together and testing the rig before showtime. For sure. So how, how were you able to set your levels? Did you do a run and then listen back or you just kind of go on the fly? Or on the Titan, doing? that was the case. We did a run and, and listened back. After that, I would ride the first ride and I still had access to the top of the bag and I would be able to set levels that way just visually. Okay. And that ended up working out fine. I'd like to talk a little bit about post because the way that I set levels affected post. What I did was I set all my levels very conservatively, right? I learned from the Porsche recording how quickly you can get overloaded, how low you actually have to set the things. So I set all my levels very, very conservatively. And Scott did the same thing. We, we ran our levels very conservatively across the whole day. I can have audio that's low, but I can't have audio that is peaked, peaked at all. I'm in a real situation where my dynamic range that I'm recording is just gigantic. Yes, for sure. The levels ended up being in a, in a spot where if I was recording at a decent level while the thing was full bore, <coughs> when we were stopped, my meters weren't even moving. They were off. Yes. So that's, that's kind of a, an idea of where my preamps were set on the thing. So once we brought it all back in into post, the first thing I did was split it all out and identify it all. We were very good about audio slating everything that was happening. So everything would be on. I would hit record. I would tap every mic and say, this is the COS 11. This is COS 11 two. This is the PCM, PCM two. This is cub. This is MKH 50. So I'd tap every mic and identify every mic. And then I would identify the ride. And we did that across the whole day. Wow. When I got back in post, I could just listen to everything. I'm not having to take written notes, right? I can just yep. listen to my audio and my slates are telling me exactly what every single channel is. Makes sense. Once everything's identified, so basically I just I just listened to the slates and then I batch renamed all my files based on what my slates were. So I would identify, you know, the you know, takes 25 through 30 were the Batman. I would rename those as the Batman and then I would I would take the individual, you know, underscore one was PZM one, underscore two was PZM two. So I would batch rename the whole thing. So by the end of it, yeah. I've got all these raw wave files. They're still raw, but at least they're named something useful to me. Useful. Yeah. And it's all and this is before anything hits Pro Tools or any kind of workstation, right? So that's my original raw files. Yes. So I take that folder and I duplicate it and I rename it pre-processed. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to pre-process all the files before I bring them into Pro Tools. What that meant was I would open up Isotope RX and I would use their batch processing to normalize everything to negative three peak. Got it. So in some cases, that's bringing the volume up 15, 20 dB. For sure. In some cases, it's not. But it gets everything into the same ballpark to where I can throw it into a Pro Tools session and just start balancing quickly. My MKH-50 was the only mic that really caught wind at any point. It's just a wind-sensitive mic, and, you know, it was catching crosswind here and there. So I spent a little more time pre-processing all of my MKH-50 channels to lose all the wind. How do you mean pre-processing? Is this still in RX? Yeah, still in RX. So I would, yeah. I would open up every file in RX, and I would use their deplosive to lose any wind hits that are egregious. And then I would EQ some of the low end out a little bit. And then I would use spectral repair to get the rest of the wind out. Got it. 
And that, that was actually magic. It's amazing how well that worked. <laughs> um, but I had to do that across all of my MKH-50 recordings for the whole day. So do you know how much footage you got at the end of the day? How long? Uh, I can tell you what my final output it looks like right now. I don't have everything output, but I'm sitting at almost two hours of edited, layered wow. stuff. <laughs> um, so a nice, simple, little tidy project. Yeah. If I look at my folder that has the raw audio in it, Six Flags, raw audio, that folder is 33 gigs. Wowzers. Yeah. And we recorded at 24-bit 96K. Yeah. So, you know, I, I go through purposefully a pre-processing step to prep everything for... Uh, matching and layering to make the Pro Tools part of the step easy. Yes. And a big part of it really is just normal, just batch normalizing everything to negative three. It just works for me. Mm -hmm. So once that's done, then I chuck everything into Pro Tools and I line up all the mics against each other. And I look for, you know, just like anything else, I look for some sort of a sync point, some sort of clack or whatever on the mics that came from disparate rigs and sync it all up. Then from there, it's it's really just balancing. I kind of don't do anything else. I don't do any other high passing or anything like that. If I'm doing high passing, I do it in the pre-processing phase. Yeah. In a lot of cases, I just don't high pass anything at all. Fair enough. And then it's just balances. And then the one other thing that I do is when I have shotgun mics or when I have you know mics that are in a stereo field, and I've also got a mic that was tracking, that was following a car as it was going by. Yeah. I will go through and manually pan that mono tracking mic to match the stereo field of the stereo mic so that I can, so when I layer those, it sounds good. Okay. And I was asking the internet yesterday or the day before. Dear internet. Dear internet, how do I auto pan something? And Twitter came through and apparently, I haven't tested it yet, but apparently there's a way in Reaper where you can analyze a stereo file decode it to MS, extract the envelope of the side, which is basically the difference in, in amplitude between your left channel and your right channel, and use that to convert it into a, uh, a panning envelope and apply that to the mono track that you need to pan with. Wow. Which is... Pro Tools does not do that. Pro Tools does not do that. And that's super useful to me because I've run into this on multiple occasions. I ran into this Right now with the roller coasters, I've run into this with the Porsches because I was manually panning all those Porsches. When I recorded helicopters, I ran into it with the helicopters. It's just a function of the way that I record, I guess, out in the world because I have lots and lots of mics up and I need to make my stereo fields match when I put all those mics together. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really cool that Reaper has kind of an automated way to go about it. I haven't tested it yet. I need to do it. But I'm excited that there's something out there that does it and, and might do it well. So one thing I'm curious about is the, the final user of these files is going to be people popping it in in a video editing suite. Right. These are people who do not want each mic individually and will not know what the hell the difference between a COS 11 and an MKH 50 is. They just want usable files in kind of bite-sized proportions to pop into their 30-second commercial. Exactly. So how did you take this massive amount of tracks and deliver it, or I guess you're in the process of delivering. Yeah, it's not all delivered yet. <laughs> yeah, so what what was your process to simplify it, kind of, for someone who isn't going to want all these options? So basically, I'm creating two folders. I'm creating a pass-bys folder, and I'm creating an onboards folder. 
And inside of each of those folders, I have the ride. So I have a passbys folder. I have, you know, the Judge Roy Scream and the Titan and whatever. So I've got Batman, Conquistador, Judge Roy Scream, Mind Train, Pandemonium, the Ground Level Superman, the Teacups, and the Titan are all separate folders inside of my passbys delivery, right? Mm-hmm. Inside of each of those, I have more folders. I have, uh, for example, in the Judge Roy Scream, I have an empty fast folder and an empty slow folder and a screamers fast and a screamers slow folder. So wait, so they can actually run the coaster at different speeds? Uh, no, I just had different parts of it that I was recording. So there was a fast kind of thing that happened and then, then, then yes. there was a slower part later in the coaster. Okay, I was going to say. Um, so that's not true of all of them, but that was true of those. Got it. And, and so for each of those individual things, I mean, I'm basically going through the process of lining all the mics up, layering them, panning them, and creating one final mix down for each of the passbys and each of the onboards, and then labeling that and breaking it into something that is easily indexable and usable. And hopefully they'll like that. And what I've been doing <laughs> is I've been trickling it out to him as I've been completing each step. And then at the end of it, I'm going to re-deliver the entire folder structure. In one package, yeah. Yep. And uh, when you say delivering it to him, is that the video editor? Or? Yes. Okay. And have you got any feedback from him yet? He likes it. Perfect. What more do you want? That's all you can ask for. Sometimes no news is good news even, but I actually yeah, got positive reinforcement, true. so that's even better. So what was your biggest takeaway? What, what thing did you learn that you're going to be taking into ne- your next recording session? Um, I felt like the prep went really well. You know, the thing that I keep doing sometimes, and I need to not anymore, is I discount those stupid Crown PZMs. They were not in the top of my mind. They were not on my initial equipment list when I put it together. And they ended up being the heroes of the whole thing. What, what put them in your head? The scout. Because I'm sitting there on the Batman ride and I see literally a four inch piece of metal is the only place that I have to mount anything. Mm-hmm. Like a four inch rail where the, the car attaches to the rail. And I'm sitting there going, the only thing that will fit there is a PZM. <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided to bring them on a whim and they ended up being just utterly key to the entire thing. I underrate those mics too much, even though... Every time I come back with recordings from them, I'm so excited about them. Like when I recorded <laughs> my motorcycle, I'm like, dude, the PZM, that's the greatest thing. And then I forget. And I don't know why I forget. <laughs> but. Well, they're certainly not as sexy as the $2,000 MKH line and stuff like that. Like, well, that's the thing. I'm so in love with the sound of the MKH 50s, but they're just not the right mic for a lot of things on moving equipment, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel like I just had a lot of things reinforced because what happened was a lot of things went well, right? The planning, the uh, the reaching out to people, the scout, the hiring of, of an experienced good person to help me out, the pre-prep and the setting of everything and the, and the building of a checklist that I built to kind of go through it all. I felt like all of that really, really went well. One other thing that I came out with at the end of the day is, you know, I've been, I've been training for boxing just as a hobby. Right. And so that's a lot of running and skipping rope. And, you know, it's, it's just a lot of, it builds a lot of, uh, cardio and strength and endurance and balance. Right. And I feel that when I'm out there on a long shoot all day, and I'm so grateful for the fact that I have been physically training my body 
even though it's for something else, I reap the benefits of that when I'm out on a big, long, hard shoot like this where I'm hauling gear upstairs and then leaning over all all day into these carts and locking everything down. And then I'm having to rip everything off and pick all the gear up and move over to the next ride that's, you know, like a hundred yards that way or further. And so it's, it's a physically taxing kind of job. And the, the physical training that I've been doing just for my own hobby really kind of has been playing into that. I've only been doing this for about a year, but it's really, really made a big difference both in this recording and in the the Porsche recording that I did earlier. Yeah, you made a similar comment about it because you were running around like crazy with the Porsches. I mean, that's just what it is. You see kind of big, fat studio guys, but you don't see big, fat field recordists. Field recording <laughs> um, ain't for sloth. It's just not. And so I've I've really found that taking care of myself physically has greatly benefited the work that I do with these kind of things. Cause I know if I had attempted this a year ago or two years ago, I don't think I would have been nearly as successful, not because of experience, but just because of my physical condition a year or two ago was not nearly where it is right now. Yeah, for sure. I play hockey two or three times a week. So I get the same kind of uh, benefits from that. Yeah. I think it's super important to, you know, take care of your physical self and to go engage in something that is exciting and fun that you enjoy so that you can keep yourself physically active. You don't, you don't have to sit there and just grind out miles on the treadmill. That's awful. I would never do that. Yeah, it's but, not for me either. But, it, but if you go find some sport that you enjoy, you know, or some physical activity that you enjoy, you can really up your game in other areas of your life. Well, Renee, while you were doing all this super interesting recording at the amusement park, I, the project I was working on, involved a 51-second long scene of an entire group of people vomiting nonstop. Nice! So uh, we each have our challenges in life, okay? <laughs> Thank God for uh, Frank... Frank Bree. Yes, Frank Bree. I always want to say Frank Bry. Uh, Frank Bry's ultimate mud package. He has all these mud pours that worked out great for uh, the vomit falling... They weren't vomiting into toilets. Yeah, I've got that mud package. It's good. Thank God for that package. Great fun for me. It That's made right. me want to vomit constantly for that time. It was wonderful. Um, but uh, you know what, Renee? Thank you for talking to us about this project. Because although you're obviously a host, not a normal guest, your projects are bringing a lot to the show. And uh, I know I'm learning from it every time. And uh, keep up the great work because I can't wait to hear what you get, get up to next. These are awesome projects that you're finding your way into. Yeah, this one was a blast. It was a it was a very unique opportunity. I was I was super happy to get the call, and, and I'm 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 just I'm, I'm up on cloud nine right now. <laughs> cool. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Stacy Dupas for letting us bend and twist her voice on the bumpers and on these roller coasters. You can follow the show at the Tonebenders. Go to tonebenderspodcast.com to leave a comment. Also, check us out at facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast. Thanks a lot, you guys, for jumping on the Amazon and B&H links and running through that thing that keeps it up and Thanks running. Thanks for listening to we'll Tonebenders. You, guys next you can find time. us on iTunes, Thanks SoundCloud, a lot. Talk and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the ToneBenders on Twitter or find ToneBenders Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at ToneBendersPodcast.com. 